You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Bill Exeter. Bill founded the Exeter Companies, which focuses on delivering better 1031 exchanges self-directed IRAs, custody accounts, title holding trust accounts, and all your special holding escrow needs. In his career, he has administered more than 125,000 1031 exchange transactions. And I can say after listening to all of your podcasts and listening to other folks on the on talk about 1031s, you by far have the most in-depth knowledge on this topic. So I'm hoping to learn and geek out on you. Throw a little teaser in there. The reason why we have Bill on the show is because I recently messed up this process in early of 2021, and I wish I would have known what Bill's about to teach us. So I think everybody's in for a real treat there. But with that, I'll stop and just say, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Look forward to chatting today. Absolutely. So, Bill, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, good question. Uh, that would have to be French vanilla. It's funny over time, it changes. When I was a kid, it was chocolate. Then you try all the different combinations. Now I'm a purist. Give me French okay. vanilla. Okay. Since you're a purist, do you do toppings, no toppings? Usually no toppings. Okay. Cone, bowl? Uh, usually a bowl. I don't yeah. want anything to <laughs> contaminate the French vanilla. <laughs> you are a very plain vanilla ice cream. I like it. I like it. If it's good ice cream, you don't need all that other stuff. That is true. Very true. Good ice cream, then you get this little uh, extra pouch down here. That's the trade-off. <laughs> You're just, just ready for the winner. Ready for the winner. Right. <laughs> so tell our listeners, what's your, what's your scoop? What do you do today? Uh, so we are kind of a trust services or financial services company. Our focus is basically everything real estate. So we administer 1031 exchanges, which are tax-deferred exchanges for any real estate that is held for rental, held for investment, or used in the trader business. We act as IRA custodian for self-directed IRAs, whether it be traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, SEP IRAs, or simple IRAs. And the target there is really investors who want to truly take control of their IRA, not invest in the typical stocks and bonds and mutual funds that everyone else allows you to do but really invest in what we call non-traditional or alternative investments like real estate or deeds of trust or mortgages or tax lien certificates or limited partnerships, uh, things like that. So it really gives them more of a f- more freedom to choose what they want to get involved with, what they're comfortable with. And in today's world, as you know, there's all sorts of concerns over privacy. So we have the title holding trust or land trust that allows you to negotiate, acquire, hold, uh, exchange and sell real estate in a confidential and private manner because everything's done inside the trust under our name as trustee of the trust. And then there's always these you know problems that creep up on you when you're trying to close on some transactions. We do all sorts of specialty holding escrows. Uh, we don't do traditional buy-sell escrows or anything like that or refinance escrows. We don't want to compete at all with title, escrow, or settlement services companies because they refer a lot of business to us. So we really do the specialty holding escrows that they're not able to do based on their regulatory environment. It sounds like a good way to describe what you all do is everything that's creative, right? If it fits <laughs> into a nice little box, probably not your guys, but if it doesn't, we're your guys and we're your team for that. That's a good way to put it. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I want to hear about some of those examples around uh, confidential land trusts when we get off here, but where did your real estate journey begin? Tell us about your first deal or how you got involved. Good question. The first deal is actually 
funny, just uh, got relocated uh, for, it was a corporate relocation. Um, so the first deal was just buying a condo for my primary residence. I just really enjoyed that. But even before that, I worked for Chicago Title. So very much integrated in title insurance, escrow, closing transactions, doing 1031 exchanges, uh, then bought the first condo. And from there, just really enjoyed real estate. And it's kind of stuck with me the whole time. And so that's why, obviously, we have everything to do with real estate here at the Exeter Group. Did you do fix and flips or were you buying and holding at that period? Or what was your kind of primary focus as you were building out the Exeter Group? I've always been a kind of a buy and hold guy. Uh, part of it is because I'm just too busy. So trying to do rehabs, fix and flips wouldn't work. Uh, not to mention, I am not mechanically inclined <laughs> at all. You, you and me both. Uh, it's just fix and flips would not be a good fit for, for me for many reasons. So uh, I'm usually a buy and hold kind of guy. Yeah, it sounds like we we kind of have a similar path in terms of having a W-2. You start accruing income as you age and you got to figure out what to do with it. Real estate's a great asset and not only get you the cash flow, but also help you on the taxes, which is where everything around the 1031 exchange and things like that come in. So I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, can you help us understand what is an exchange? Because I know 1031 is one of them, but there's also 1035, 1032s, all that kind of stuff. So what is an exchange? Sure. Uh, so an exchange, uh, whichever one you're talking about, and it's an exchange is tax deferred. It's a tax deferred transaction allows the investor or holder of the asset to sell the asset, uh, defer the payment of all federal and state taxes, which really means as you boil it down, you're keeping 100% of your equity in your pocket. You're not paying a third of your profits to the federal and state governments. So you're keeping all of your equity in your pocket, which means you're then much more able to go buy larger properties, more units, more doors, uh, you know, whatever it is, it's usually either you're trying to trade up in value, buy more value, buy more cash flow, whatever your goals and objectives are. But it's all about keeping the money in your pocket so you can go do all of that. If you had to pay a third of your profit to the federal and state government, it makes it very difficult to, to trade up or buy more units and improve your cash flow. When did the 1031 exchange come into an existence? Has that always been a rule or was there some kind of instance that it formalized? Actually, funny you should ask that question. This is actually the 100th year anniversary of the 1031 exchange. So it came into play in 1921, wow. been around 100 years now. Every three to five years there's some type of a proposed change and we're going through that right now as well. So the Biden administration has proposed changes to that. But it's survived 100 years and it's usually because we get out there and we educate uh, members of Congress and educate the administration on benefits of it and how detrimental it would be to the economy, not just the real estate industry, but the economy if 1031s were changed or eliminated. It's funny because when you said the 100th year, isn't the IRS income tax only, wasn't it created in like 1913 or something like that? Exactly. It's just a few more years older right. than 1031 exchange. So within seven years, the government already realized, wait a minute, we need to have some kind of exclusion around this exchange process because of the value of it. So we talk about 1031 on the investment side. I, I want to start with ten, uh, the 121 exclusion because that seems to be something that everyone out there, if you own a home today, you can take advantage of the, 10, uh, the 121 exclusion. What is that? Good question. And that's actually a great new mousetrap, if you will. A lot of the investors have been around a long time, probably remember the day where you could sell your primary residence. And as long as you reinvested within two years and you traded into something that was equal or greater in value, you deferred your taxable gain. 
Um, and so that was actually a 1034 exchange transaction, but they just didn't realize they were doing a 1034. Uh, that was taken away from us and replaced with the 121 exclusion that you referred to. And the 121 exclusion in most cases is a better mousetrap because it's tax-free where the old 1034 exchange was tax-deferred. So with the, with the 121 exclusion, as long as you can say you've owned the property and you've lived in the property as your primary residence for two out of the last five years, when you sell it, you get $250,000 in gain tax-free if you're single, $500,000 tax-free if you're married. So it's a great way to build wealth and not pay any tax on the gain. Yep. So if you're a new investor out there and you're just starting, a, a great option is to go buy a primary residence that you can house hack and rent out the rooms, or maybe it needs a little bit of care and love. And as long as you've lived in it two years out of the past five, doesn't have to be consecutive if I'm remembering correctly, right. So it doesn't have to be consecutive as long as it's two years out of the first five. If your capital gain is up to $250,000 single, $500,000 married, you can actually take that tax-free and do whatever you want with it. We're going to Vegas, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and you can do that once every two years. So uh, that's the one of the best things about it is literally if you uh, watch your taxable gain on your, your house and as you're approaching that 250 or 500 mark, get ready to sell, move on to the next one. Yep. Of that's assuming your spouse will say yes. Uh, yeah. If you have spouses, then no. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So the 1031 then, so that is your personal residence. Uh, it is tax-free. 1031 is tax-deferred and it is on, more on the investment side. Is that correct? Exactly. So the 121 only applies to your primary residence. The 1031 exchange applies just to property held for rental investment or business use. There are ways to combine the two. So there's strategies where you can use the two together, depending on your situation. But otherwise, 1031s are just investment property and the 121 is just your primary residence. Gotcha. So if it doesn't fit in a nice clean box, we know who to call, who's the creative <laughs> guy to figure it out. So I buy a property and this is why I brought Bill on the call, by the way, is because I bought a triplex two and a half years ago and the market has just been crazy recently. We put a little bit of love into it. It has exploded in value. It's in a great location. I decided to throw a very high price on the market just to see if I got it and I got above asking. So I had sold it. And up until this point, I've always heard you could just 1031 properties into the next one. And so I sold it. And then I called some syndicators and I was going to place it. And they said, well, we're not going to place that capital because we have to have a tenant in common or a DST, which we'll go into in a minute. So then I started looking for property, not realizing that I already, already received the fund. So can you help us understand, I've got a property, I want to sell it. I want to take advantage of this idea of tax deferring my capital gain. What are the steps that I need to make sure that I cover to get advantage of this, to take advantage of this? Good question. And, and uh, we get that question every week, multiple times a week when people call up and literally say, just like you just indicated, I sold, I closed, and I want to do an exchange. I'm told I need you guys. And unfortunately, at that point, it's too late. So the key is that the, the 1031 exchange has to be set up and in place before closing. That's the key. If the closing occurs without the 1031 exchange in place and without the qualified intermediary being assigned into the transaction, when the closing occurs, the seller, the taxpayer, has the right to receive the funds. So even if you tell the closing agent, let's close, but don't disperse the money because I want to do a 1031 exchange, it's still too late because you have the right to the fund. So that's really the issue. When you set up the 1031 exchange and we get assigned into the transaction, literally we step into your shoes as the seller 
And when the sale closes, the right to receive the funds goes to the qualified intermediary, and that's what defers the taxes. So that's the most important thing. Get the exchange set up before closing. How do I qualify a qualified intermediary? Can it be anyone? How do I know that Bill's not just going to run off with my money? Like, what, what does that process look like if I'm an investor? I'm glad you asked that question. A lot of people don't, and a lot of uh, webinars and seminars don't even touch upon that. So they are all across the board. Anybody can set up shop as a qualified intermediary. You don't have to have experience. Uh, the industry has no capability to license or regulate or anything like that. So those are questions you absolutely have to ask. There's people who've done it for six months and they set up their own company and they really haven't made all their mistakes yet. Uh, so it's scary. Now, when you look at how much money a qualified intermediary holds, you've got to be careful on who you select. Um, so I'll kind of compare and contrast. You get a lot of small mom and pops. They're, they're not licensed. They're not regulated. They're just a qualified intermediary. They're probably more processors than anything. And that's dangerous because, you know, they could decide just to walk off for whatever reason, and that leaves you kind of stranded. Uh, so I'll kind of go down the list. I think the first and most important thing is you want to look for a company that has some type of direct regulatory or government oversight. Uh, we recognized that years ago that, you know, this industry doesn't have any regulatory oversight. There's no capability to get licensed. So we decided to, to get regulated. We had to do something. And uh, we decided to go down the path of a trust company. So we went through a couple of year process of getting licensed, uh, reviewed, approved, and now regulated as a trust company. Uh, so we're actually subject to an annual audit by the Division of Banking as a trust company. So I think that's the most important thing, because if you look at all the qualified intermediaries that have failed over the years, almost all of them could have been prevented had there been some type of government oversight. So that's the most critical part. Then you get down to, you know, how do you do business? And it's critical that you have the safeguards in place that one person can't move the money. And the smaller qualified intermediaries don't have enough bodies to, to do that. So one person does use You want an operation that's at least large enough so it takes uh, four or five, six people to go through that process to move money. Uh, so it's very difficult for an employee to embezzle funds. Uh, and then you want to look at bonding. So do they have fidelity bond coverage? That's crime insurance. Uh, do they have E&O insurance? That's errors and emissions. All of that covers you in the event the employee misappropriates or embezzles the funds or if they make a mistake and it causes you a loss. All of that kind of comes into play. So those are critical issues. And I think the, the last item would be experience and expertise. And there's a difference there. Companies that have a long track record, have a lot of experience doing 1031 exchanges and have the expertise in them, know what to look for and catch problems before they become permanent. You mentioned something about the insurance and the E&O insurance and a way for some people out there to, to kind of think about that is if you're in there, you have all the right intentions, but you fat finger a account number and it automatically gets sent to a different bank. There's no real recourse there. That's what that insurance is. And I actually didn't know that you could just set up so I could set up to be a qualified intermediary without any kind of regulatory oversight. So I think that is key. And you want to find people that specialize in this because like you mentioned earlier, there's multiple different exchanges out there, not just the 1031. You can co-mingle and do all this other stuff. I've heard you talk about the, the a like property too. So if I am selling a triplex and I want to 1031 it, does it have to go into a triplex? Does it have to go into a single family? Can it go into something bigger? Can it go into retail? What is a like property defined as? Uh, and that's probably, uh, and I want to broaden that a little bit if I could. It's a uh, there's really two topics there. One is qualified use and one is like kind. 
those are probably the two most important areas or topics for a 1031 exchange. It's also the most confusing area because there's so many opinions that fly around out there. And, and the opinions sound like facts. So the poor investor goes, okay, I talked to three people. I got three different answers and, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. So the, when you boil it down, qualified use means that all of the properties you sell and all the properties you acquire through the 1031 exchange have to be held for some type of rental investment or business use. And the like-kind uh, definition, a lot of people do exactly what you're talking about, is they think if you sell a, a triplex, you have to buy a triplex. You sell a condo, you have to buy a condo. That is absolutely false. Uh, literally, like-kind means you're selling real estate, so you have to buy real estate. As simple as that. So there's all sorts of things you wouldn't even think about that would be considered real property. And that would include things like water rights, air rights, mineral rights, uh, oil and gas interests. There's just a lot of things that state law define as real estate and you wouldn't even think about it, but they would qualify for 1031 exchange treatment. Yeah. If our listeners are watching this on uh, the video, my, my face lit up there. So are you saying that I could sell that triplex and then go buy air rights in Manhattan and 1031 exchange it? That is, that's awesome. That's awesome. Even like farmland or something like that too? Farmland, rangeland, timberland, that all qualifies. Um, interesting side note, if you're buying, let's say a vineyard, uh, if you buy the land and the, the vines are already planted in part of the dirt, they're considered real estate. If the vines have not been planted yet, the vines don't count as part of the real estate. Timberland, if you buy the land and the trees are still attached, they haven't been cut yet, that qualifies as real estate. If the timber's been cut, the timber itself won't qualify as real estate, but the land certainly will. So there's all those little nuances when you get into farm and ranch and timberland and vineyards. Yeah. So I want, if you're listening to this right now, to, to start thinking about this is a, a good way that you could diversify your portfolio as well. If you went into 2019 and you were heavy office and then 2020 starts to happen, you could actually 1031 years into different asset classes within real estate and give yourself a little bit of diversification exposure into other, other niches, I guess you could say. A great way to diversify. I've heard you talk to about three different types of 1031. There's the forward, there's a reverse, and then there's improvement. So forward seems pretty standard to me, like I'm selling this and then I'm buying a new property, but maybe could, could you help us context around what is a forward 1031 exchange versus a reverse? Sure. In fact, uh, in our operation, forward 1031 exchanges represent about 97% of our transaction volume. So that by far is the most common. And it's the simplest, most straightforward. So you're selling first, and then you've got 45 days to identify from the close of your sale what you're going to buy. You have an additional 135 days after the 45 days to actually acquire it. So you've got a total of 180 days to do all of that. 45 to identify, an additional 135 to close. And so that's really your, your 1031 exchange period. And that's your forward exchange. You sell first, you buy second. Much more straightforward documentation is easy. We don't have to take title to the property. It's deeded directly to the buyer, et cetera. The risk with a forward exchange is you're selling first. So you've locked in your taxable gain. The question is, uh, are you able to identify replacement property um, and or are you able to acquire that replacement property? And if for any reason you can't find property that makes sense or you do and you're going through due diligence, you decide not to buy it for whatever reason, uh, then your exchange fails. There's no way to go back and undo the sell. So at that point, it's a taxable event because your 1031 exchange failed. The offset is the reverse 1031 exchange where it allows you to take all the time you want, go out and find the right property, do your due diligence, make sure it's suitable 
you actually close on the acquisition of your replacement property first, then you've got 45 days to identify what you're going to sell. And in most cases, people know that. So it's just a formality. We have an additional 135 days after that to actually close on the sale. So they're really buying first and selling second. Uh, that sounds great. The challenge is, and the reason there's only 3% of the volume, is that they're a lot more complicated. The A pure reverse exchange would allow the investor to go out, buy the new property, take title to the new property, own both at the same time, and then sell the current property. And, and that's not permitted. Uh, the IRS just doesn't allow that. So they've set up this parking arrangement where we as the qualified intermediary have to acquire and hold or park legal title to the new property. So lenders aren't necessarily gonna cooperate with that. Uh, there's more complexities in the closing process, but you're buying first. So you've got the property, you've closed on it, you know you've got it. So it eliminates a lot of the risk of the 1031 exchange. But questions like, how are you gonna pay for it because your equity is still trapped in your property you haven't sold yet, uh, would a lender cooperate? Things like that are, are the reason it's a lot more complicated, difficult to do. Gotcha. And then what's an improvement 1031? And the improvement exchange can be done either as a forward or as a reverse. Effectively, what you're doing is you're selling an asset. You use some of the cash proceeds to buy whatever the replacement property is. It might be dirt that you're going to build on. It might be property that's already got improvements on it, but you're going to retrofit it or make other improvements. But you're using some of the cash to buy the replacement property, and then you use the remaining exchange funds to build or retrofit or improve the property you've acquired. Same type of complexities. We have to acquire and hold title. It's what the IRS calls parking title. So we, as the qualified intermediary, hold title. You own it, and we're only, we hold title. It's really through us. Uh, and that gives you the rest of the 180-day window to use the remaining exchange funds to pay for the improvements on the property. The challenge is you've got the 180-day exchange period. So if there are minor improvements, you know, you're adding carports to a multifamily property or something like that, it's feasible. If it's a ground-up construction project, you're probably not going to get done. You may not even get your permits in time. Uh, that's the tough part. But whatever is paid for and the corresponding construction completed during that 180-day window, that part will count. Whatever's not completed just won't count. So it may end up being a partial exchange. Look, I hope everybody out there understands why I brought you on the show, because this is the kind of knowledge out there that I had no idea. I always was told just 1031 it out there, and I had no idea around time limits what counts for like that you could go buy land and basically plant vineyards on it within that 180 day shot clock. And that counts as rolling it in. Um, but the, the topic that you just brought up was 45 days to identify 180 days to close. That's what everybody needs to think about as they're thinking about 1031 exchanges. What I should have done with my triplex is say, okay, I think I might put it on the market. And if I'm thinking about putting on the market, let me go identify an asset immediately that I can go put it in uh, because then you're extending the time period out. I've also heard you do things like, or talk a little bit about leasing to sell, leasing to buy to extending the time period out a little bit beyond the 180 days. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like what, what are those strategies look like? In fact, those points you just brought up are perfect for today's market because today's market's crazy. Um, 
it's it's a fast-paced market. It's short supply of, of inventory, uh, multiple offers, bidding wars. I mean, it just the stories you've heard out there, I'm sure, are crazy. And so it makes a 1031 exchange very difficult. So you hit the nail on the head. You want to go out there as soon as you know you're going to do an exchange and start looking for property. Uh, on the buy side, uh, the difficulty today is it's a seller's market. And if you're on the buy side, you're not the seller. Um, and sellers are probably not willing to cooperate much today until the market shifts. But if you can get a seller who's willing to cooperate, uh, if you can tell them, look, I'll, I'll lease the property from you. I'll pay you a monthly rent or lease payment. Uh, so keep you happy. You're making money on me. Uh, and then with an option to buy, and then you can exercise the option when you're ready. They might go for that because they're making money and then they get to sell. Um, if you can uh, go put it under a contract to buy and have a long-term closing period, uh, maybe options to extend if you need that, something like that, then it buys you more time to get the property locked up. You know you've got control over it. Then you can sell your current property, which is probably going to go pretty quickly. Um, so that would certainly help. On the sales side, when you're starting your 1031 exchange, uh, you're the seller. So you're in the driver's seat in today's market. So when you're listing the property and marketing the property, just put it out there. I'm doing a 1031 exchange. If you want to buy my asset, I need you to cooperate with me on my 1031 exchange. Some buyers were more than welcome to, or more than willing to do that because they can get a really good deal if they're willing to cooperate. Uh, my wife and I just sold the property and we had a bunch of people who approached us and said, look, if you give us like a 20, 30, $40,000 discount, we'll wait as long as you need to wait for a 1031 exchange. So that's huge when you're doing a 1031 exchange. Uh, so there's options like that. But if you can delay the closing of your, the sale of your relinquished property, then your deadlines don't start running yet. Uh, or if you can somehow tie up the replacement property so you can close when you're ready, either of those sides of the equation can help you. And it's all about planning and all about timing. Yeah, it, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here. It sounds like you're almost putting a put contract on. Um, you're leasing it from the seller until you want to buy it. All you're out is the money that you're in hard and some monthly ongoing payments until you sell yours. So uh, super interesting. And, and that's why I love real estate, by the way, is because you can get as creative as you want within the legal boundaries of playing this game. There's no cut and dry way of doing this. Um so if I wanted to sell that triplex and move it into a bigger syndication property, so some of our listeners out there are more on the limited partner side, they invest funds into syndications and things like that. There are two common terms out there. There's ticks and there's DSTs, tenant and commons, and Delaware statute trust. Um, can you define those for us and talk a little bit about the differences between the two? Sure. Uh, in fact, we get a lot of questions, a lot of phone calls where uh, investors are getting ready to do a 1031 exchange. And they say, I want to buy a syndication. And that's the first uh, first word we hear. We go, okay, we need to, to drill down on that and ask, what are you planning on buying exactly? Most syndications are structured where it's an LLC or a limited partnership. Uh, the LLC is going to have multiple members. So a lot of investors are buying into that. So for tax purposes, that's actually treated as a partnership, uh, just like the limited partnership is treated as a partnership. So what you're really buying is a partnership interest. You're not buying real estate. Uh, the entity is actually buying the real estate. So in those cases, it wouldn't qualify for 1031 exchange treatment because you're not buying real estate. Uh, so most syndications won't qualify. Uh, but those, uh, those syndications that do qualify are exactly what you mentioned. So it's the tenant and common investment property. And that's where you're buying a direct interest in real estate. You're actually on recorded title. And under the there's a revenue procedure 2002-22 that actually covers the requirements for that. Um, 
that revenue procedure is a little more complicated, a little more, it's, it's a strange revenue procedure, but if your CPA wants, they can look it up and get real technical on that. But effectively, you're allowed to have up to 35 investors because it's sold as a security. It's usually a reg offering, but you are on recorded title. So it's treated and sold as a security, but it's really treated as real estate for tax purposes. And it does qualify for 1031 exchange treatment. Uh, so that does work. Uh, now, that was really the syndication of choice prior to the Great Recession of 2008. Uh, then during the recession, lenders found that getting 35 investors to agree to the same strategy was almost impossible. It was like herding cats. So it, it, the lenders really kind of drove that whole decision and said, we're not going to lend to syndicated ticks anymore. Uh, we will lend to the Delaware Statutory Trust or DST, which is really the kind of a new thing that was developed in the early 2000s. The IRS came out with a revenue uh, ruling on that in 2004. And so that ruling really kind of drives everything going forward. So most of the syndications now are Delaware statutory trusts. And really in layman's terms, it's a trust that owns either one or, or a portfolio of properties. We're talking large assets. So it's usually, uh, you know, you get some that are 20 or $30 million. Most of these are 50 million to $250 million portfolios. They're very large assets or large portfolios. Um, and you're buying a beneficial interest, interest in the trust. So you're identifying and acquiring maybe a 0.0025% interest in the trust. Uh, it's also sold as a security, but it's treated as real estate for tax purposes. So if you buy a fractional interest, that counts as part of your 1031 exchange. And the beauty of DSTs is that you can tell the sponsor, I need, I have exactly this much money down to the penny and you can invest right down to the penny. So um, that's kind of a nice benefit to have. There's all sorts of other positive reasons for, for working with the DSD. Yeah, that was uh, very good. Thank you, uh, because that's the best explanation of a DST I think I've ever heard. Uh, it, the, the key I want to pull out here, though, is if you're selling a property and moving it into a syndication, you need to make sure that that operator, that syndicator, that general partner will accept DST 1031 money, because I, that's where I messed up is I thought that most of the syndicators that I were working with would just openly accept DSTs. And I had two of them specifically say, if you don't have a half a million dollars, we're not going to go through the regulatory process of setting up a DST to accept that kind of money. And I'm like, I've got money here to invest in your deal. And you're saying no. So you'd need to make sure that your operators understand that. Any other caveats you would throw around that or anything like that, that I might've missed there? No, that's a good way to describe it. Uh, we get a lot of calls on, you know, how do we choose the syndication or syndicators? And, you know, some have been around for years and years, decades. Um, and so you really want to look at two things, the property itself, because you're buying the property and the syndicator, the syndicator or sponsor, as they typically refer to them as, the, the sponsor is really going to be the one that puts it all together, packages it, sells it off, uh, services it. And you want to make sure they've got a track record. So for me, I want a, a sponsor that has gone through at least a couple, one or two recessions, in this case, COVID-19 as well. I want to know that they can handle difficult markets. Everybody can make money for the most part in a really hot market. You want to know how do they survive the bad markets? You know, can they survive or do they crumble? And, and you know, all this, a lot of the sponsors are relatively new. They come out of the woodwork when the market's hot, they disappear when the market's tough. So look for the long-term players. Absolutely. Before we get into our five toppings question, I don't want to breeze over the topic that you also do self-directed IRAs and 401k with checkbook access and things like that. 
most of our investors don't even realize that right under their nose, they've got access to funds that could get involved in real estate today if they channel their IRA into non-traditional assets, which are governed by Fidelity and Chase and all those banks who really just want AUM fees, asset under management fees. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is a self-directed IRA? How do I get involved in it? And maybe some best practices around that before we let you go. Sure. Uh, in fact, most of you probably have an IRA, like a Charles Schwab, a TD Ameritrade, a Fidelity, you know, et cetera. Uh, they allow you to buy stocks and bonds and mutual funds. Uh, so my one comment there is every IRA is self-directed because you choose where to put the IRA, um, but not all, all IRA custodians are created the same or created equal. Um, so trust companies can allow much greater choices, if you will. And then if you get the real self-directed IRA custodians like we are, you know, you can get into all sorts of real estate related assets. So you really transfer your IRA from like a Charles Schwab or Fidelity or TD over to Exeter Trust Company. Uh, it's the same IRA, just a brand new custodian. And the custodian allows you to invest in all these non-traditional or alternative assets. And it could be buying real estate in your IRA, it could be uh, buying a promissory note secured by a mortgage or secured by a deed of trust. It could be a tax lien certificate. It could be a, a syndication that we just talked about that doesn't qualify for 1031s. You could buy that in an IRA. Uh, so there's all sorts of alternatives, including things like cryptocurrencies and whatnot that you can buy inside the IRA that a typical custodian wouldn't allow you to do. Yeah, absolutely. And we did a whole episode of that with Josh Plave, who goes into some of the details around that. But that is a tremendous asset that you all offer or tremendous value that you all offer to your uh, clients as well. And I didn't want to let that go without talking a little bit about that. So thank you for that. Switching into our last round here of our five toppings, we ask everyone, what is your favorite book or what book have you read recently that's had an impact on you? So I guess that means other than Harry Potter, right? <laughs> you could say Harry, if you want to say Twilight, we'd allow that here. You know, it's funny, you get into so many things that are so stressful and you're so into everything that sometimes Harry Potter lets you just run away from everything for a while. Have you read them all? I've, I have read them all. Yes, I, I have to admit I am a Harry Potter nut. Not off the deep end, but I do love the Harry Potter series. It's just uh, she has an amazing... Um, uh, imagination and just did a great job with that. I think she deserves everything she got. <laughs> so, so I got to ask, have you been to Harry Potter world down here in Orlando? Not in Orlando. I've gone to the one here in California. Uh, not quite as good. I don't think so. Hopefully this year as everything starts to open up, we want to get, get out there. That's awesome. That is actually the most unique answer I've had to that question. And I love it. The second one is, I believe that the person you are 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you do every single day. What is something that you do every single day? Uh, I would say perseverance. You just never give up. You know, you're, you're going through life and life throws you all sorts of things. Um, there's ups, there's downs. You just don't give up. You just keep pushing forward. What's, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? That goes back to when I was 17 years old. I attended, which is really weird for a 17-year-old, I know, but I attended a uh, kind of a workshop on budgeting and financial planning and things like that. And it stuck with me. He wrote it up on the chalkboard. This is back when they actually used chalkboards. And, they had yeah. chalk. um, and it was pay yourself first. Nobody else will. And, and then he went into the whole, you know, set aside money for investments in the different categories. And it just stuck with me. Uh, nobody else is going to look out for you and your retirement. So you got to pay yourself first, set money aside, invest it and build your nest egg. And that's probably the best advice I ever got. 
What is the thing that you're most proud of in life? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think on the business side would be the Exeter Group. What we built here is uh, we never thought we'd get to where we're at, and it just keeps getting better. So from a, from a professional perspective, certainly what we have built here as a team. Uh, on the personal side, uh, I was a 50-year bachelor, and I always joked I was on the 50-year plan, had no idea it was right on the money because I got married when I was 50. Uh, but my wife, and now I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and best thing I ever did. That's awesome. You're giving me hope. <laughs> Our last question is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, who would it be and why? Actually, this is going to sound like a really interesting answer, but I'm just really curious. I would love to get into Donald Trump's head. Um, I like some of the things he did. I'm not terribly fond of him personally, but I would really like to get in there and figure out what the heck was going on. <laughs> Especially in the morning tweet sessions. Yes, it's a morbid curiosity, but I'm just trying to figure out what the heck. I actually thought you were going down a Harry Potter reference and I was like, uh-oh, I'm not going to be able to keep up with this. So <laughs> I'm glad you said somebody I at least know. Well, Bill, this has been fantastic. I, I want to nerd out on so many different things that you brought up uh, that we didn't have time for. So we'll have to bring you back at some point to go down these rabbit holes. But if people wanted to find out more about you or get in contact with you and, and your company over there, what's the best way to do it? Sure. And I'm out of the headquarters office in the San Diego area. So you can call me direct, uh, area code 619-239-3091. Uh, you can go to our website at exeterco.com. So that's E-X-E-T-E-R-C-O. Excuse me, com. All of our contact information is out there. Awesome. Thanks again, Bill. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.